So before I read the gospel, um, I want to share a story that makes sense to me as a story to share for our reading of scripture tonight. It's a story, so far as I can tell, um, from my own life about how the Lord, a point at which, a point uh, that I can look at to see the beginning of God teaching me um, some of the kinds of truths that um, all of us are invited to learn in our readings from scripture tonight. Um, So it's a story about stuff I learned at the Wesley Foundation and stuff that I didn't, um, but started to learn later on. So those of you that have heard me talk about my experience at Wesley um, as a student back in the day um, at all may remember that my, especially my experience of being an intern at the Wesley Foundation was a profoundly affirming experience. And one of the many kinds of things that I came away from my experience at the Wesley Foundation knowing um, was that I was the greatest. That in some ways I was the best at, at doing ministerial work. And it, that wasn't just an idea that I came up with all by myself and my pride. It was something that, um, I'm kind of paraphrasing it, but it was something that I was told um, by the, the director of the ministry at that time, a person that was profoundly important in my life, and, and to some extent by other people in the ministry. And so I left the, the, West, the Wesley Foundation knowing that I was the greatest at ministry and knowing how to do ministry, believing in my ability to accomplish all the things, the very the, the sort of grand things that I was confident that God wanted me to do when I went forth from this place. So Wesley had taught me that. What it hadn't taught me um, was anything about how children, or even a wife for that matter, might fit into um, this grand purpose that God had for my life as, as the, the greatest thing that had ever happened to, to ministry. Um, and so about a year after I left Wesley, I think I, I was coming back down here, I think probably for one of the sort of deluge of weddings that were, that were always happening in that day. Um, we go through seasons at Wesley where there's a bunch of people getting married, and so I was coming down to be in some bridal party or other, and um, around that same time, my wife and I had been gone for about a year, I was in a place where my ministerial talents were not at all being put to use. Mostly I was spending my days in the drive through at Starbucks, uh, hearing wealthy people uh, yell at me about their white mochas. And um, my wife and I were struggling to, to make a life in a new place that we didn't know. Um, and both of us were, were hurting in a variety of ways, and we, we also were trying to figure out what, what our family was going to be. And Holly had started uh, sort of prod me about when we were going to have kids. So I came back, I came back here, though, for, for this trip, to be in this wedding. And I had an opportunity to talk to my previous mentor. I was riding around with him somewhere one day with some other people. And um, I asked, you know, should we have kids or not right now? Like, is it time for us to have kids? I don't know if I'm ready to have kids. And what I wasn't saying was I thought that kids would probably get in the way of all the really amazing things that, that this person had told me God was supposed to do. Um, I also didn't know if, if it was okay that, that I saw real weakness in both myself and my wife. Um, that we weren't everything that I thought the perfect Christian couple was supposed to be. And I had shared some of that with this person that I was talking to. That imperfection, which I now know is an extremely ordinary kind of imperfection that exists in early, or early on in marriages. But I said, you know, should... What, what should I do? Should we have kids? And, and this person said to me, you want to bring kids into that mess of your life? He was suggesting, 
You're not at the right level yet. Uh, your marriage isn't performing at the, the optimal level of what a Christian marriage should be. You can't possibly know what to do with kids yet because you can't even get yourself together and performing in the way that you ought to be. Only about a year, maybe two years later, I was having a conversation with a very different um, kind of mentor, um, another pastor up in the place where Holly and I had moved to. And Holly had continued to prod me about having children. And, uh, and I was kind of saying, nervously, given the response I'd received in the previous, in the previous conversation, should, should we have kids? Um, should we start trying to have kids? And this person's response was to say, of course you should. Like, what else would you do with your marriage? Um, and I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe we're not ready. Maybe we, we don't really know what to do with them yet. And he responded, you don't have to know. No one's ever ready to have kids. Nobody's ever ready to have kids. Uh, also, he said, you don't do something with kids. You're just supposed to welcome them. Children are for welcoming. And with that story in mind, I want to invite you to stand together to hear this reading from Mark's Gospel. Our reading tonight comes from both Mark chapter 9 and chapter 10. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, silent. for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms... He said to them, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, and the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. <clears throat> Knowing Jesus is finding ourselves welcomed by him in the ways he welcomes children in these readings from Mark's Gospel. But as soon as we begin to speak of children, we immediately have to guard against sentimentality or against fluffy interpretations of what's going on here. Children are so likely to be sentimentalized in our culture that when we, when, we have, when we hear someone speak unsentimentally about a child, when we hear someone speak frankly about what children are actually like, we're liable to be shocked. Uh, this past Sunday evening, I can't remember how this came up, but in our discipleship group, at one point, somehow, it was pertinent for Pete to say, <laughs> you already know where I was going with this, for Pete to say, Elias is bad. <laughs> Elias is my son. Uh, he was like, man, Elias is bad. What was the context? Give me the context. Um, 
This is not, I'm not making fun of you. Yeah, I don't either. I don't either. <laughs> but it was kind of a shocking moment. Um, he proceeded to specify what he meant by that. I mean, it was shocking because typically the stuff people say to me about my kids, and I, and I like it, and it's true. It's just like how amazingly cute and awesome they are and how obsessed they are with them. And I think all that stuff's great, right? Um, so this really stood out, though. Elias is bad. Just no qualifiers whatsoever. <laughs> he went on to say, I mean, like, uh, you'll tell him something to do, and he'll just say, no. <laughs> just straight up. Um, he's right. I mean, that's something Elias needs to work on. Uh, it's something that needs attention. It's not praiseworthy. It was an unsentimental way of speaking about children. So, when we speak of children, we hear Jesus speaking of children in this passage, it's not sentimental or fluffy. And yet at the same time, there's no way around admitting the fact that in both stories, Jesus is pointing to children and saying, be like that. He is holding them up, not sentimentally. He's not idealizing them. He has a sober view of children, but he is nonetheless saying, be like that. Be like those children. He's not holding children up because of their innocence. Instead, in both stories, children are held up as revelatory instances of God's love. Which is to say that their apparent badness, if Elias was one of the kids uh, in the, that Jesus is interacting with in this story, and he was conspicuously bad in the ways that, that Pete named the other night, it wouldn't change anything about Jesus' behavior toward him, nor would it change what it is that Jesus is trying to show us. The children in the story are held up, and they're pointed to, and Jesus points to them and says, be like that, but the reason he does that is because children in these stories are revelatory instances of God's love. They show us God's love. Jesus directs our attention to them as a kind of corrective exercise. A corrective to our distorted view of, God's, of God and our distorted view of ourselves. In the first part of our reading tonight, the reading from, that came from chapter 9, the distortion that needs correcting is made evident by the disciples' desire to be the greatest. Their desire to be the greatest. And the argument that they're having, um, it's almost comically honest. Like Mark's description of this argument, it's, it's, it's almost absurd how straightforward of a description Mark gives us about what's going on. Um, Jesus asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? They were silent because on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. And there's like no subtlety. And if we like imagine what that conversation was, we could just imagine this kind of like, I'm the best one. Nuh-uh. Yeah, no, I'm the best one for this reason, right? Um, it's, it's obvious what it is that they're arguing about, at least in, in Mark's description of it. The matter-of-factness with which Mark describes the argument suggests that trying to be the greatest is not isolated just to these people and much less just to, to this particular interaction among these disciples. It's not the circumstances or the personalities that that cause it to be the case, that that is what it was that they were arguing about. There's something isolated about this argument and what the argument's about. Rather, arguments about who, are, who is the greatest 
are one of the usual suspects, one of the most common suspects of human life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this at the beginning of one of his chapters in Life Together. He says, we do not think often enough about the fact that no Christian community ever comes together without that argument that the disciples were having happening. No Christian community ever comes together where that argument isn't going on, Bonhoeffer says. It's happening everywhere. I go even further than Bonhoeffer does to say, and I think you would agree with this, that trying to be the greatest isn't just the way that we interact with one another in more or less straightforward ways, but trying to be the greatest, that, that names the shape of our approach to life. Probably of everyone's approach to life. Definitely it's, it's the approach to life that everyone that I've never known, that's what, they, that's what they're doing by the time they get to be your age. Trying to be the greatest is the shape of our whole approach to life. Whereas with the disciples, at least in Mark's description, that argument is out in the open. Um, our attempt to be the greatest may not always be quite as obvious. We also see their eagerness to keep that argument a secret from Jesus. So also, our compulsory efforts to be the greatest are liable to be more or less visible. We're liable to be more or less forthcoming. Our attempt to be the greatest is so habitual, it runs so deep, that we likely do not notice just how pervasive it is in the way that we approach our lives. And so one of the invitations of this passage, very simply, is for us to begin to notice the way that that's the argument that we are living in ourselves. So I want to try to name some clues, just to try to name some clues that give away ways that we, we too are living our lives in pursuit of being the greatest. Firstly, I point to the psalm reading that we had just now from Psalm 127. Trying to be the greatest is the life program against which the psalmist is testifying when he says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. If your life is nothing but work, that's a life that's lived in the pursuit of, grace, of, of greatness of being the greatest. Burning the candle at both ends, the psalmist says, you rise up early, you go late to rest. Burning the candle at both ends is an affront to the love of God. Right? Doing that is in contrast, the way the psalmist has written the psalm, to the way that God loves us. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Why? Because the Lord gives sleep to his beloved is the way that that second verse in that song ends. Burning the candle at both ends is an affront to the love of God. The Lord gives sleep because he gives sleep to his beloved ones, as another translation says. Um, I quoted that verse to a colleague of mine once, and he responded, yeah, I've always hated that song because I have a really hard time sleeping at night. I'm coming in the song, yeah, it makes me think God doesn't love me. Um, so just to clarify, this doesn't mean God doesn't love insomniacs or people that have a hard time sleeping. Rather, what the psalmist is naming here is something like the delight 
that parents take just in watching their children asleep. It's similar to my delight in watching my kids wolf down red meat. I love seeing my kids eat and eat heartily and eat stuff that's like just protein, you know? It makes, I don't know why, but my whole life I've been like, this is pleasing to me. <laughs> because I, I want to know that my kids have what they need to flourish. That they're getting what they need. The Lord gives sleep to the ones he loves. And so burning the candle at both ends, going to bed late, waking up early, all for the sake of endless toil and productivity. This is an affront to God's love in the sense that it's a refusal to receive a pattern of life and flourishing that the Lord wants for the children that he loves. If your life pursuits take it for granted that your fundamental creaturely needs, and sleep is one of them, can be neglected or can be hotwired, you're trying to be the greatest. More broadly, there are clues to our pursuit of being the greatest in the stuff that we do and in the way that we do that stuff, in the way that we either square up or don't square up to certain kinds of activities or actions. Very broadly speaking, we're liable to prize and prioritize those arenas of activity with clearly defined standards of achievement and success in more or less formal ways. We do the things where there is such a thing as succeeding and doing so in ways that are recognizable. When we consider the undertaking of some task or other, when we're trying to decide whether or not we're going to do this or that thing or learn how to do this or that thing, we rarely consider just the activity itself. Right? Instead, what we consider is what it would mean to do that activity with unassailable perfection. We don't ever look at what it would mean to begin to do a thing, to begin learning how to do it well. When we're trying to decide if we're going to do it, what, we're really, what we typically have our eye on is what does it look like to, to be the best one at that thing. We want to do it with unassailable perfection, with skill and success that surpasses all or at least most, most others, or in ways that capture the very highest prizes that are afforded by that kind of activity. So to try to explain what I mean here by, by the way that we don't put our eye on the activity itself, but often instead we put our eye on sort of the greatest prizes or highest achievements of that activity. So uh, I'm a hunter and a fisherman, right? So it's easy as a, as a, as a bow hunter um, to think if, if you're going to get serious about bow hunting, what that means is that you have to kill the largest, oldest Boone and Crockett buck in the state. That you, have available, that you have access to. Does anybody know what Boone and Crockett means? No one? That's fine. That's it. You know what it means? Uh, Ella? I kind of know what it is. You want to take a guess? No. <laughs> it's a scorekeeping system that measures the antlers of deer. All right? <clears throat> so that's what we think about. That's what we have our eye on. Instead of thinking like, oh, I probably ought to learn how to shoot a bow. Or how to pay attention to what direction the wind is going. When I was learning to fly fish, which took a lot of years and a lot of frustration, um, when I thought about fly fishing, what I thought about was 
um, was not the activity of fishing, but the activity of catching. And not just catching, but catching the biggest, most front-of-a-magazine-worthy, hook-jawed brown trout in the river. But if you've ever tried to learn how to fly fish, you know that most of that experience is hooking yourself in the face, uh, getting your line tangled in ways that don't make any sense to you, you, have no, you don't understand why, why it even happens, and just feeling like an idiot and falling in the river. <clears throat> One day I talked to a guy that was a, an excellent fisherman that I was trying to learn some stuff from, and I, th- I was probably complaining about not catching that many fish or something, and he was like, dude, for like the first two years, the, the only thing that I counted as success was if I just did it, if I didn't screw up my cast and lose like 12 flies every time I went out on the river. So the, the difference between the activity, right, and learning the activity, and the sort of highest ends of achievement inside that activity. Here's another story uh, that I think, I have a lot of stories I want to tell you tonight, so here's one of them. Uh, a story about pursuing, uh, trying to be the greatest. My very first year in divinity school at Duke University, um, I'd been waiting a long time to go to school, um, to go to seminary. And on the bus ride one day, I had to take this bus ride from where we were allowed to park to where we actually took our classes. And on the bus ride, I ran into this person that I happened to know from the town that I just moved from. Um, her name was Rachel. I've told this story to some of you before. And uh, I sat down with all the pompousness of a first year divinity student beside this person and was like, so, what are you interested in studying while you're here? Um, which may seem like a relatively innocent question. But what I was really asking Rachel was, what's the angle you're going to work? What game are you playing? What competition are you going to try to win in this sort of arena of uh, a perfect intellectual performance? What are you going to do to attempt to be the best? That's what was what I was saying underneath, underneath this coded language of what are you interested in studying? And her response was profoundly convicting to me. Um, she looked at me with bafflement and just said, I, I just want to learn how to be a pastor. That's why I came. And I thought, oh, there's something wrong with me. <laughs> but I just kept on for a while. It took me a few more years before I quit picking up. Anyway, <clears throat> we're affronted in general by the slowness with which any skill comes and by how fraught it is with failure, aborted attempts, wrong turns. And that's evidence of the way that we want right now already to be the greatest. Alternatively, we avoid activities. We're not just impatient with things that take a long time to learn. Sometimes we just outright avoid pursuits, worthy though they may be, precisely because we know we won't be able to get it right on our first try. We avoid activities that will expose our ignorance, our lack of of know-how. And as a result, our choices and our activities are narrowed into, into the confines of what we already know how to do or we already can predict that we will be able to succeed at with relatively little failure or embarrassment. More broadly still, our pursuit of greatness is evident in the way, usually the secret way, that we are aware of our place in this or that pecking order. And there are endless pecking orders and ranking systems, official ones, ones that are written down, and ones that are unwritten and unofficial that we traffic in on a daily basis. And our awareness of where we are in that pecking order is an artifact of 
our, our habit of wanting to be the greatest. Our defensive and jealous comparisons of ourselves to others, our eagerness to categorize everyone we meet in contrast or in similarity to ourselves, all of these are clues to our habitual attempt to be the greatest. Um, children have to be taught to do all of that stuff. Um, you don't come into the world already having all of those habits. So here's another story. Um, my son this, this week, Elias, the bad one, uh, <laughs> he's not bad, he's not all bad, uh, has been going to tennis camp uh, in the afternoons, which I didn't know was a thing for seven-year-olds, uh, much less did it ever occur to me that, like, Elias would play tennis. It's just, I don't know why. I was just like, really? Tennis? Okay. Um, but Holly found out about this thing, so he's been going to the tennis camp in the afternoons. And yesterday was his first day at tennis camp. And um, when he came home, he was like, Dad, I got this uh, farting slime um, as a reward. So it was like, I don't know. I don't know what they call this stuff. But, you know, you've seen this stuff. It's like in a clear container, huh? Blark. Blark, sure, yeah. You know, you stick your finger to it, it farts, and he was like, I got this as a prize for being the best, the most obedient and helpful uh, person in my grade at, at tennis camp, which I just want to be clear. There's nothing evil about this, okay? <laughs> All right? <clears throat> um, and I was like, oh, that's great. That was yesterday evening. So this morning, when we're going to school, he's already excited about going to tennis camp, and he, he's telling me again, as if I didn't already know, he's like, you know, they have a thing where whoever is the best one and who stands out the most in, in practice, um, they get a prize. And I, and I thought, you know, that, they didn't, you didn't know about that yesterday. And I, I, I talked to him about this a little bit. You know, you didn't know about that yesterday and you did that stuff that you got rewarded for without knowing that there was any reward for it. Right? Um, but today, he's a little bit more indoctrinated, right? He's a little bit more practiced in there being such a thing as, as the best, right? And trying to stand out. And, and what he does is now potentially complicated a little bit more. This is not something I can protect him from. This is what happens to all of us um, than it was before. Part of what it means to be childlike, part of why it is that Jesus responds to the conversation, who is the greatest, that argument, by bringing a child into the conversation is because part of what it means to be childlike is to not yet be enraptured in our ego by the possibility of being the best and the greatest. Not yet being governed in our actions by the pursuit of being the greatest. That's part of what it means to be a child. In verse 35 in chapter 9, in response to the disciples' argument, we read, Jesus sat down and called the twelve and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. And then having said that, Jesus brings a child into their midst, a person who is deliberately relegated, or perhaps unconsciously relegated, to the periphery of the argument that the disciples are living in of who is the greatest. A child a person who scarcely appears on the horizon of the disciples' ambition. Jesus brings this person, this child, into the center and makes the child a focal point and says, 
Here's the last one. You're worried about who's first. Here's the last one. This is the one that doesn't even appear as a blip on your competitive, imperative, categorizing radar. He places a child over against the disciples' competitive drive to be the greatest. In so doing, Jesus is showing them what they ought to do. What they ought to do. He's demonstrating to them the kind of activity that they ought to prize if they want true greatness. And there is such a thing as true greatness and a greatness that's worthy of pursuit. As he brings the child before them, he's showing them the kind of thing they ought to do. It's an activity that represents the greatest possible contrast to greatness as we conceive it as fallen people. The greatness that we imagine as fallen people is always activity that that produces, that is productive, or that at the very least is recognizable as valuable by many, many others. It's activity that never stops bearing the burden of proof because it's always liable to, to be bested by some more useful or productive kind of activity. It's activity that that never escapes the arena of competition. No amount of competition or success or winning can ever be complete and come to rest because it always could be more or it could be better. In short, greatness as conceived by fallen people is achieved through activities that that have some kind of, of result, some kind of valuable product that comes out of them. Over against whatever kinds of activities make up the disciples' illusory greatness, Jesus says in verse 37 of chapter 9, you know what you ought to do instead of those kinds of activities? What you ought to do instead is welcome children. That's what you ought to do. You should welcome children. Think about what he's telling them to do. Think about that activity. It should be baffling in a variety of ways. Firstly, because welcoming children already seems to attribute to children a kind of worthiness that is at least a little bit misaligned or or different than what we typically think of doing with or for children. We think of providing for children. We think of dealing with children. We think of managing children. But Jesus says, what you ought to do is welcome them. And secondly, and more deeply, what ought to be baffling about this teaching from Jesus in verse 37 is what in the heck does welcoming children accomplish or produce in this world? How can welcoming children be measurably significant or make a difference? But Jesus says that welcoming children has the greatest possible significance For whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. In Christianity, what it means to become a mature person, an adult disciple of Jesus, is to deliberately abandon the instinctive habit 
of trying to be the greatest. Because whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Let's move on now to Mark chapter 10. In the second portion of our gospel reading, the distortion that needs correcting is an overvaluation. Of course, we've already started to see this in the first part. But it's an overvaluation of our own activity and productivity. So with an eye to Psalm 127, if we read Mark chapter, this, this, these verses from Mark chapter 10, 10, with Psalm 127 ringing in our ears, then we can understand that overvaluation of our activity in terms, uh, in the sense that we overvalue what we do because what we do doesn't actually accomplish as much as we think it does, literally. However much it accomplishes, it never accomplishes as much as we think it does. Unless the Lord builds the house, those that build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the guard keeps watch in vain. But at a deeper level in Mark chapter 10, what's being addressed here is the ways that we get confused about how our activity makes us worth something. How what we do makes us loved by God. And that confusion and distortion is revealed in these verses through the disciples' annoyance with children. In the second part of our gospel reading, folks are bringing their kids to Jesus so he can lay his hands on them. But the disciples are speaking sternly to them. The disciples are irritated with the presence of children. These people just seem to know that they ought to bring their kids to Jesus. And and the disciples are irritated with the presence of children. Mark doesn't explain their irritation. He doesn't say why they're irritated. Presumably because the irritation doesn't need explanation. There's something about the reaction of the disciples here that, that ought to be readily recognizable or familiar to most hearers of the story. There's something, perhaps, in the disciples' annoyance with children that's common or universal to anyone who might follow Jesus in any time or any place. I suspect it may be more pronounced. So, first of all, I think their irritation doesn't need explanation because it's a thing all of us are liable to have as a reaction to children, right? But I also want to say that so I think we're, li- we're liable to have it now. I think the males of us may be liable to have it more than the females. Um, this is not, I don't think, because of some rigid gender role idea I have in my brain. It's just what I've observed. And these guys are dudes also in the story. Um, I suspect it's more pronounced than the males among us. Um, regardless of male or female, it may be even more pronounced. This is a really egregious thing if it's true. It might be most pronounced among professional Christians, which is what these disciples are, of course. They're on staff with Jesus, so to speak, doing ministry. The context in which they're annoyed, and maybe even the grounds on which they're annoyed, we might imagine, is the needs of the ministry, right? The activities of of their work together. The disciples are decisive. I mean, they don't seem to have any kind of self-doubt about being annoyed, or maybe, or speaking sternly, right, with the people that are bringing their children to Jesus. They're self-assured in their rebuke. It seems obvious to them. They take it for granted that these kids are somehow in Jesus' way. 
their playfulness, their need, their inefficiency, their lack of utility and contribution. The fact that there's not much you can teach them, really. All of these are an embarrassment, an encroachment, an interruption to the work they're trying to do for Jesus. Which, apparently, they take for granted. That work has nothing to do with kids. And again, I think that assumed unimportance is common to, is, is a common assumption. And yet, if Jesus' ministry has nothing to do with kids, why do kids get so much play in Mark's very concisely written gospel? Um, Mark is not long-winded. He's least long-winded of any of the gospel writers. He has a, a profound economy, a profoundly concise economy of language. And yet he tells almost an identical story twice in the span of two chapters about children. If children have anything to do with Jesus' ministry, why do they show up as much as they do in Mark's gospel? Or for that matter, why do they show up as much as they do throughout the New Testament? So there's lots of examples I could point to, but, but consider this one example from another gospel. In the gospel of Luke, the very first chapter, the angel Gabriel um, comes with the word of God to visit a man named Zechariah. And if you know that story, you know what, you know what happens in the story is that Zechariah gets in trouble because he, he doesn't respond, he doesn't believe what Gabriel tells him. Which Gabriel's, what Gabriel tells him is, you're going to have a son, and his name's going to be John. Despite the fact that, uh, you know, that your wife is, and you are both you know, oldest in, you're going to have a baby. Your, your prayer's been answered. And Zechariah gets in trouble because he doesn't believe him. And, uh, and Gabriel's like, who are you to not believe me? Uh, I hang out with God all the time. You're not going to say any more words until your baby's born. Um, so here's, here's the reading. Let me read it to you. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your petition has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and will give you will give and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the people of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who, who will go as forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this baby, this child, in Elizabeth's womb, that's about to be in Elizabeth's womb, Gabriel says this child is going to do some pretty incredible things. It's going to be his job to turn many of the people of Israel back to their Lord. He's going to be a forerunner of the Messiah. And in the midst of that description of John's vocation, John the Baptist's vocation, this unborn child's life, one of the things that makes the cut of all the things that need to get listed in that vocation is to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. Why, among all the things that might be the, the thing you would reach for, the thing that the angel Gabriel would reach for as the evidence that the people of God had turned away from their sin and toward the Lord, 
had repented and begun to become the people of God again, among all the things that he could have listed but didn't, why is one of the things he does address the turning of the hearts of the fathers back to their children? There's something about the annoyance um, of the disciples with children that's universal, that indicates a universal problem that we have. It might not be that obvious that we contemporary American Christians are annoyed with kids, though, in the way that the disciples are. In lots of churches on Sunday mornings, it can seem like there's quite a bit of attention paid to children. Um, And to be sure, we do have room for paying attention to kids in church as long as we can bring them as non-disruptively as possible into the crosshairs of our ministries. All right? So as long as we have a children's ministry, as long as we have a children's moment, as long as we have a vacation Bible school, we attend children. But whatever else the merits of such ministries may have, and, and seriously, I'm not dogging those things. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't do that stuff, right? Just please trust me on that. But hear me out. Whatever merits those kinds of ministries may have, all of them conceive of children in a way as objects, as recipients or materials of our <coughs> teacherly or ministerial efforts. Likewise, in American churches, children sometimes are focused on, frequently are focused on, uh, under the rubric of the next generation. The heard church people talk about the importance of youth group or of a children's ministry because they're the next generation of Christians, yes. Again, nothing evil about this. However, what it means, what, we, what that phrase means, and the feelings that usually surround that kind of talk about children means, is that the presence and malleability of children The fact that they are as radically teachable as they are, their malleability, their presence among us and the ways that they're malleable, exacerbates whatever current anxieties we already have. Whether those anxieties be about the direction the pastor is taking the congregation or the direction the denomination is going or the direction the neighborhood is drifting off into or whatever it is. Frequently, that's what we're talking about when we, when we say that we, we want to focus on kids because they're the next generation. In other words, we see children under the aegis of, of a potential, a potential to be realized, an opportunity to be seized or an opportunity to be lost. And therefore, as, as something that needs to be subjected to our activity so that we don't fail to utilize them. Such efforts, however well intended, they are all kinds of utilizations of children. They don't treat children as a primary, but as a secondary good. The children in those circumstances are important because of their impact or their potential impact. They are important because of the ways they need to be impacted. Does that make sense? You all follow me? No. By contrast... Think again of Gabriel's words to Zechariah. 
Gabriel's word to Zechariah certainly does rejoice in what the birth of John the Baptist will mean. But it doesn't look to any further outcome than the child itself. The invitation that this child represents for Zechariah is not something other than the child himself. It's the father's hearts that need turning toward the children. Not the father's efforts or plans or lessons that need turning toward the children. It's the father's hearts that need turning toward the children. Likewise, it's firstly to Zechariah's heart that Gabriel's message is addressed to his affections. Before Gabriel says anything about what John will do, the very first thing he says about his son is this, you will have joy and gladness. His name's going to be John, and you will have joy and gladness. Such that it might not be wrong to say that Zechariah's failure isn't purely or only that he doesn't believe the word of God that's coming to him through the angel Gabriel. His failure isn't just that he didn't trust Gabriel's word. Rather, his failure is that he, he, he doesn't enter, he doesn't just simply enter into the great joy and gladness that his son is. He fails to enter into the great joy and gladness that his son is, apart from any further explanation or justification of what might be produced by his son. Furthermore, consider the intriguing fact that Jesus doesn't teach children in the Gospels. He doesn't teach children in the Gospels. I mean, we can imagine that they receive some teaching insofar as they're around when he's teaching everyone else. But this is an interesting contrast. By comparison to what Jesus does with everyone else in the Gospels, when, when, the, when the story sort of zooms in close to a particular interaction with specific people. Most of what's happening most of the time in Jesus' interactions with people is he's teaching them or correcting them or transmitting something very important to them or sending them off to do something. But Jesus doesn't teach children. Jesus doesn't have a children's ministry that would be recognizable under the description children's ministry in contemporary Christianity in America. He's got no special programming for kids. He doesn't worry about children. He doesn't fret over what they'll become. Jesus doesn't ask children to do anything. What Jesus does with children is hold them. Jesus holds children. Both stories, from chapter 9 and 10 tonight, they show us Jesus holding children. In chapter 9, verse 36, then he took a child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them. In chapter 10, verse 16, he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. He took them up in his arms. This is not incidental to what it is Jesus is trying to teach his followers in these stories. Um, it's just, he doesn't just happen to be doing that while he's teaching them. He took them up in his arms. That's what every child wants. 
And part of what it means to be a kid is that you want to be held. Very simply. Every child wants to be held. Um, anyone that's ever babysat my kids knows that um, my daughter Margot is incredibly adept at manipulating bedtime to make it be as long and elaborate of a process as it, as it possibly can be. And uh, one of her last tricks is after all the negotiations at bedtime and all the different, you know, we've gone through the liturgy of bedtime, and uh, most of which was, was conceived by Margot. And um, I'll, I'll think that we're about to turn off the light, and she'll say, uh, I want you to rock me. I want you to rock me. And I'm like, I mean, honestly, most of the time I'm just like, oh my gosh, no, this is not part of the deal, right? We agreed that we were going to be done right now. Right after all, I did all this other stuff for you, and my wife feels similarly. And, and one night, she even was like, she had been the one that had been doing this sort of bedtime routine. And at the very end of it, uh, I was passing by, and, and I heard Margaret say, uh, "I want Daddy to rock me." Uh, and Holly was like, "No, we've already done this." And I was like, and I walked in, and I was like, "No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rock her." And and Holly, and Holly, Holly was like, "God, you're such a pushover with her, you know? You're like, gonna everything," which is true in lots of ways, I'm sure, but. Um, so I went and rocked Margot, and I came out, and I was like, listen, uh, it's fine with me if we, you know, if we put our foot down on any number of other things with Margot, like, I, I'm willing to try harder with that, but I made it a rule to myself that I'm never going to tell her, no, no matter how bad I want to go to bed or do something else, I'm not going to tell her no when she asks me to rock her. And the reason is simply that, um, she's not always going to, she's not always going to want that. She's not always going to be a size, right? That it makes sense for me to do that. And because this is what it is, right? This is what it is for us to have a relationship, actually. It's in the most basic sense, is for me to hold my daughter. Jesus took them up in his arms. That's what children are for. That's what you're supposed to do with a child. He took them up in his arms. What's happening in that moment, both these moments, 9 and 10, is Jesus is showing the disciples the shape of God's love, not just for kids, but for them. He's doing that and pointing to the kid because they need to see, this is what I'm doing with you. This is who God is for all, for everyone. He took them up in his arms. What children need, most of all, is to find themselves claimed, embraced, delighted in. They need to be touched, named, seen, known, and celebrated. Jesus does that. Jesus welcomes children. Over against the disciples' impatience toward kids, Jesus is endlessly hospitable to them. He welcomes, he makes room for all of their need, all of their hope, the raw wildness and open-endedness of their identities. He welcomes them. He gives priority to being with them, to holding them, unproductive and inefficient and devoid of accolades as that activity is. Jesus takes the children into his arms, and as he does so, he looks at his disciples and says, Unless you receive the kingdom of God like this, you won't make it. 
The task of knowing Jesus, beginning and end, is nothing more and nothing less than letting ourselves be taken up into the arms of Jesus. Knowing Jesus is giving in to the love of God that is always and relentlessly given to us. Always already embracing us. At this table, we say that it's a good and a right and a joyful thing to give thanks to the Lord. And that's true partly because at this table, we meet a God who sees us as good and joyful. And for whom there is never a time that we are not one who he wants to embrace and rejoice in. It's good and right and joyful to give thanks to the Lord always because at this table we find ourselves as objects of God's delight. Here we meet a God who wants nothing more or less from us than to hold us. The words we pray here we pray in the confidence of the children of God. Here we lift ourselves up to the Lord, who always, already, readily, and eagerly takes us into his arms. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.